welcome to the podcast. I'm your host and executive coach, Adam Melnick. With over a decade of experience in mental health, leadership, and coaching, I aim to help you understand leadership through a mental health lens. So let's sit back, relax, and have a chat. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, I'm greeted with Cynthia Late, resilience coach with over a decade of experience in the change management industry. Welcome to the podcast, Cynthia. Well, thank you, Adam. It's great to be here. How are you doing this fine December? Oh, it's lovely. I've got a fire going in the fireplace. I've got a few days off and I am thrilled to be here. I'm very envious of you at the moment because I do not have a fireplace. And so I'm making do with my TV. (laughs) (laughs) So I figured we'd get right into it because I know you are a master guru at change management. And I'm kind of curious because we tend to talk about change management as if people know what it is. And it tends to be a bit of a buzzword in organizations. In your experience, what is change management? Um, That's such a great question. And change management is used in several different contexts. So a lot of times there's change management used in the software development cycle, and that's how they manage releases. They call it change management. Um, What I do, um, what I call change management, is really it's the people side of change. A lot of times an organization will make a change, be it a new piece of software, um, a new organization, a change in a process, all those things. And it used to be that they thought, we'll just send an email and then you're good to go. It's all done. But what's happened is um, that, that there's, you're not just you're not just flipping a switch on a piece of machinery. You have a lot of people who are affected. And the changes, people underestimate the effect of change on people. And so what happens with change management is you work with your teams to help them learn about the change, take in the change, own the change. And when you have a good change management, you really start seeing adoption cycles much more quickly. Um, You you reach your ROI much more quickly and you get people who are much more willing to take on this new process or change or piece of software. Uh, It really helps projects be successful. I think there's a stat somewhere that says that um, companies, I think 80% of company projects fail because people don't don't, don't do the new process and they still use the old process or they have workarounds. So with good change management, you really ensure that your projects take hold. Oh, that's absolutely fabulous. I know in today's landscape, change seems to be an almost a constant. How do you balance when to implement change management and when not to? Oh, that's another great question. So you always want to think about change management. Um, what I generally do with my um, with my colleagues is we have a, I have a change risk assessment spreadsheet and you look at the magnitude of the change, what other changes are happening, the levels of change fatigue in the organization. And depending on all of those factors, uh, you decide on a course for change that is, that is uh, matched up to the level of change that's happening. So people are change fatigued for sure. It's, I think it's a, I see it a lot in my organization, but I pretty, I'm pretty sure it's a world phenomenon um, right now, we've just we're almost done with the pandemic. I don't know if we're done, but um, that's that's still in most most of our lives. Um, we've got two global conflicts going on right now amidst all sorts of other things. So people are already coming into their jobs with a certain level of of change fatigue because there's just all of these things happening. 
Um, so you really want to take these into consideration and work with your teams to decide, well, how do I want to position this change? How can I make it beneficial to my team? And really look at the human side of it so that they want to take on this change and it's beneficial to them. Well, and you said change fatigue a couple of times. Like, what is change fatigue? So what happens is when you're when you when your brain is used to doing something, you've already got the neural circus working so that it's I go from point A to point B to point C. Like if you're driving to the grocery store, you don't think about it. The minute you change the location of the grocery store, you become conscious of how you have to drive to get there. So it's the same thing with any kind of change at work. People can do their jobs and become pretty efficient at what they're doing. And then when you start changing things up, they have to think about, oh, no, no, I'm not supposed to use this tool. I'm supposed to use that tool. And I need to log in this way. And I need to do this thing. Or I don't report to this person. So they have to put a lot of thought into what they're doing for things that used to be automatic. And so if it's just one thing, they can do it. But if you've changed five things for them in a couple of weeks, it's going to be a lot more exhausting because you have to think about what you're doing and you're finding new routes. It's your brain is developing new neural networks. So eventually the networks become automatic, but it takes some time for you to process the change. So uh, change fatigue happens when you have too many changes happening at the same time. That actually makes a lot of sense because I remember working with one organization that they seemed to change the entire process every six months oh. and I was exhausted by the yeah. end of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like, imagine yourself, you know, if you're traveling, you go to a brand new city and you've never been there before and you've got to figure out, okay, where's my hotel? Where do I park my car? Where do I get something to eat? You have all these things that you're focused on and it's it's really exhausting the first few days to get your bearings. How do I get around? What am I going to do? Am I going to go to the museum? How much does it cost? And if you're in a different country, do I have the right currency? Who are all these people? It's it's your brain is really out there and it's almost in hypervigilant mode trying to make sure there's no danger. So your brain is operating at 150% and we are on vacation, so you're excited about going. But if you're doing that at the office, it's exhausting. Yeah, and I can see how that would burn some people out. Yeah, absolutely. What should you be looking for when you're looking at change fatigue in your people? What is that? How does that come out? Um, it comes out in resistance. You have people who start resisting any and all changes. And then there's, uh, so, so they'll avoid the change. They won't talk about it. You will also see a lower morale and lower engagement because they're just exhausted and they just don't have any more to give. You'll see some of those signs in people, or they'll be pessimistic about the new change. Oh, it's the flavor of the month. So um, you'll see a lot of those kinds of factors come up and uh, it's really hard to come back from those. So you really want to do all you can to not get too far into the areas, uh, into deep change fatigue, because then um, it, it's a long road back. Well, knowing that it's a long road back, like how would you even start to get back and revitalize that enthusiasm for change within your organization? So we've actually run a number of programs within my org, but what we've just done this last year, which I think was a really great um, step in that direction, was we've actually run a couple of um, series of workshops with our teams. Um, through one sets of workshops, what we did is we actually had everybody in the room in different locations, and we did these workshops where people talked about what would you like to see be different? What would help you have a better work experience? And so when people start feeling heard, that does a lot to build, to rebuild the trust with their leaders. So that's one series of workshops. And then the other series, I did just finished doing a series of focus groups with many of our um, change fatigue uh, teams. And we talked about 
what do you need to feel more refreshed? And we had a lot of conversations. So hearing, allowing people to express their frustration, their their irritation, their exhaustion is a step in the right direction. Again, it's connecting and building relationships and then brainstorming on what do you need to feel less change fatigued and what, how can we help you? Those, those two kinds of programs really go a long way to rebuild the trust and help people take a breath. A third way I should have just thought of it as we're talking is I used to run these practicing resilience workshops and just allowing people to take a breath. Um, it's very much like a coaching session. And as a coach, we're both coaches. So um, it's really allowing people to acknowledge and take a moment to acknowledge what's happening. We tend to run at such a fast pace that we don't allow ourselves to process everything that's happening. And by doing these resilience workshops, um, it gave employees the time to just sit and think about, okay, what just, what's going on in your life? What, are, what changes are happening? How are you feeling about it? And how are you dealing with them? And in having these small groups share, uh, just knowing that somebody else is going through it with you is almost, it starts to relieve the, the pain of whatever's happening. And then when people start sharing what they do to manage change in their lives, it could be, you know, I, I go for walks or I pet my dog. And there are a lot of creative solutions there. And you start, again, building a community and helping people connect with each other. And they start getting ideas from each other and they start feeling not so alone. And it does a lot to relieve some of that. I love how it always comes back to your people skills, <laughs> whether it's leadership <laughs> or change management. It's all about your people skills. <laughs> it really is. It really is. It's. I think so many leaders think that you can just, you know, drive this bus at 90 miles an hour, 100%. Like, no, you need to take breaks. You need to take care of your people. And that's change management. And so when you're seeing some of that change fatigue going on in your organization, or you're just seeing that you're not quite ready to make these changes that management wants, how do you have that conversation with them? Oh, I tell them we we've actually I'm trying to quantify it in numbers, but we're looking at ways to how do we know when we've kind of hit that mark of, oh, we're going to have too many changes. And we've already I think we've already hit it. Um, so now we're looking at ways. So how do we how do we manage for 2024? How are we going to manage our change so that um, we can potentially make things more predictable? So instead of having projects happen willy nilly, can we group projects so that they come along like waves so that people say, OK, the next three months, nothing's, or for the next two months, nothing's going to change. At the end of the month, oh, here's the wave of changes. And adjust to those changes, then kind of wait another two months. So almost like surfing a wave where it's predictable. And just having some predictability helps you because then you're not on the lookout. Oh, another change is showing up out of the blue. That, again, helps the brain to calm down and feel more receptive. So those are some of the things that you can look for to help reduce the and. Um, the other piece of it is also um, something that's actually I've, I've seen other organizations do and we're about to launch is this change champion network. And this is bringing in almost like ambassadors or individuals from across the organization to be part of the project manager team. And then we start feeding into some of the changes that are coming. So they're clued into what's happening and they get to share that with the other team members. So there's a little bit of a more of a network and open communication and uh, letting people know what's happening. Because if people know, it's just like, we know that Christmas comes every year. But if it just showed up out of the blue, it'd be, but we know, okay, December 1, and you see reminders everywhere and you're in the know and you start figuring out who wants what and what you're going to do and what you're, so so this is the same kind of thing is pe keep people, keeping people in the know and allowing them to know about the changes that are coming up helps them feel a little bit more in control of the changes that are coming. 
I love that. I'll be level with you. I am guilty at my job of not paying attention to management. They send me emails and I kind of skim them and I kind of tune out yeah. during meetings. And so knowing this, like, how do you actually inform people that these changes are coming? How do you tell them like, yeah. hey, man, we are changing the organization and you need to pay attention because I'll level with you. My managers will tell me once. And then two months down the road, I'm like, why are we changing all this stuff? Like, listen, man, we told you two <laughs> months ago. So you bring up such a great point and you are probably more typical than you realize. Most people do that. And I, and one of the errors that managers make is they think that if you tell somebody something once, they forget about it. it they, 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 it's enough. And I'm like, and really, if you look at advertising, if you look at any kind of advertising, repetition, repetition, repetition. So telling somebody once in an email is okay but and then it needs to be showing up somewhere else and it then needs to be part of the conversation so it really needs to be repeated multiple times in multiple media and then when it happens you're like oh yeah i've been hearing about this for months finally we're getting there so i think the error that managers make is they think if i tell them once well they've heard it they should know like no they need to hear it in different ways the other th errors that manager managers make is they think they tell people one thing and everything's fine and what they don't realize is when a change happens, their team member needs time to process it before they can even ask questions. I'll give you an example, org changes. People say, oh, the, the manager gets the email in the morning. Here's the org change. It's a surprise for the manager. Tell your team this afternoon. And so the manager has no time to understand what the org change means and all the repercussions. And they have to share this with their team. So they tell their team, of course, a zillion questions come in. The manager like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'll figure it out. But it, it, it makes for a lot of uneasiness and discomfort and challenge and people will feel really, it, it breaks up morale. It, it causes so many problems. What The way I try to do our, our any kind of org changes, first we let the managers know and we give them time to think about it. And then we check back in with them. What questions do you have? What FAQs do we need to build? And we give them a few days to process what's coming up. What questions do you think your team members will have? And then we invite them. Um, if a team member is going to change managers, we actually recommend two meetings, one meeting to have the initial conversation. We have, you know, the empathetic leader guides. We have a lot of su suggested language and we do a lot of, we, we invite managers to act as coaches to listen and to allow space and silence for processing. Because as we all know, if you've ever rushed a two-year-old through the, through any kind of change, you're not going to get anywhere. You need to allow people to think about what's going on. You need to allow them to process things. And then you come back for a second meeting a couple of days later. How are you doing with this change? What support do you need? What other questions do you have? And it's a much gentler approach, but it's a much more effective approach at, at helping people feel supported through a change. I love that you're giving space for people to actually mm -hmm. think about this. Because yeah. I know in coaching, most of the work is done after the coaching session. When I work yeah. with a client one-on-one, -on -one, we start talking about something, but then they need a processing time before they can actually yeah. implement anything. And that's the same thing that happens with change management. Yeah. It's like, all right, we're doing this. Let's have the initial conversation. But then people are just starting to process it. And down the line, they're going to have questions. And to allow that space to be like, hey, let's talk about this. Let's answer those questions. Let's do that FAQs. Phenomenal. Exactly. I, I love that you brought that up because as I've become a become more and more experienced with coaching, I've brought more and more coaching principles into change management. And it's really improved 
things so much for our organization. Well, and knowing this, I was kind of curious, how do you create that buy-in when you, you're starting something new? So generally, um, people think of change management as a bolt-on near the end of a project. And really, it, it needs to be part of the project from the beginning. And what you want to do is you want to bring people in during the project development, invite them to help to, to help with the design or give their point of view so that they sort of know what's happening and they can share insights. And that's part of what this changed um, champion network that we've talked about earlier is meant to do is to kind of give them early heads up. It's not about throwing something at the very end. Here it is. It's perfect. Because most of the times when you have a project manager developing something, they're making assumptions about how people are going to behave. And then if they wait till the very end to test it, I guarantee you at least half of their decisions were wrong because they don't understand the, the, the living environment, the context for what they're developing. So bringing in people early so that they see it, you have people give their point of view, makes it so much better when they've bought it because you already have people who have bought into the design and they become your advocates. And they help to, so it's no longer, I'm telling you how to change this. Your peers are telling you what this is going to be. And that makes a big difference. I love that. I remember learning about change management. They said, you have to look for your wolves within your organization, your informal leaders, because if you yeah. don't get them on board, they will eat you alive, yeah. which is why they called them wolves. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Another, another side of that also is we call them our resistors. Um, if you've got people who are strong resistors, they're the ones you bring in early. Like you said, the more you can get the resistors on board, because they're people who are really passionate about what they do. And if they're really strong resistors, if you can get them to turn around and get enough buy-in, they become your really strong advocates. Ignoring them is not is a bad idea because they're going to say what they, they're going to think the way they're going to think, and they're going to be vocal about it. So bring them in and talk to them, and they may even challenge your ideas, and that's good because. If you can win them over, you know you've designed a good product process, whatever it is that you're doing. And so how do you implement these resistors into your project in a way that doesn't alienate them? Well, so you bring them in as we, we've formed advisory groups and we bring them in into these advisory groups and we talk about, okay, here are our requirements. What are your thoughts around this? And we bring them in as it's very collaborative. And they say, well, this isn't going to work because of that. And then you talk a little bit more. Well, what's, what do you think we should do? And bring them in as collaborators. And you may not do everything they want because most of the times they may have very specific requirements. But when they do, a lot of times they help make the process better. And most of them are pretty reasonable when you have these conversations. They can understand why we didn't go, you know, we, we did B instead of A because they're not the only users of the system. But bringing them in early and really having them feel heard. A lot of them are people that need to feel heard. And if they're not heard, they're going to be heard in other places. So listen. It's funny you say that because I know for a fact I am one of your resistors. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> when it comes to organizations, I've had so many managers try to implement change management and then they do it and I don't like it and they've never done the consulting. They never brought me on yep. board and they encounter so much resistance from myself yeah. and many of my colleagues because it's like, hey, you didn't listen to us and now we are going to make your life miserable <laughs> until you decide to do things our way, not yours. So how do you think things would have gone if they had invited you in the very beginning as part of the project and helped develop the solution? Oh, I thought, I think it would have gone much better if they had brought me on board because at the time for many of these projects, I was senior staff 
And I was the mm-hmm. one doing a lot of the training and organizing at the organization. So if they brought me on board and they had got my buy-in, then I would have got ensured the buy-in of the other people that yeah. I was training and uh, leading essentially in within this organization. But because they didn't get yeah. that buy-in from me, yeah. the people that were following me, the people that were training underneath me took my point of view and were on my side. <laughs> yeah. And it was like me versus the organization. And it's kind of, again, it's a yeah. headache for management. But for me, I was sitting there yeah. like, why didn't you just talk to me? Why don't we uh, work to, on this together? And I was not the only exactly. one on this front. Exactly. You sound like a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people, you can't ignore yeah. your wolves. You have to be nice yeah. to them. You have to bring them on board. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, and one of the questions I know that these people have and what I would always have is, how do you know if this is a good change or a bad change? So really, I, I try to stay away from the, this black, the black and white thinking of a good change or a bad change. Because if you look at a change, there's always going to be pros and cons for every change. There are going to be changes we like and changes we don't like. Um, let's let's give the example of a, a reorg that doesn't seem to have a, a really, you don't agree with this reorg, how this has been reorganized, and you don't agree with it. Um, even Even in the midst of a reorg where you don't agree with it, it's an opportunity for those who are part of that to reassess what they want for themselves. We all have these wake-up calls. I can't tell you the number of people who said, oh my God, getting laid off was the, was the best thing in the world for me. So we have this expectation that everything should go a certain way. And really, and this is the work I do as a resilience coach, it's like these things happen and this is part of life. This is a normal part of life. So this expectation that a job should go one way and you should stay with it forever, it's like that, that no longer exists. And we need to become more open to when this change happens, what do I want to do with this? What, what, what are the benefits of, what are the potential benefits of this change? Is this something I want or is it something I don't want? And you really have to, within yourself, decide what you want and don't want. So it's not really a good change or a bad change is look at the change. What does it mean for me? And really stay open to what could it mean for me? Maybe you try it out for a bit. And then if it doesn't work, you're like, okay, what's next for me? Um, we've all had changes that nudged us way out of our comfort zone and it's been very uncomfortable. And Adam, you and I have coached about a lot of this. It's just been, <laughs> I'm so bad about such and such and blah, blah, blah. And then in the end, you're like, oh my God, it's it's an opportunity for growth. And I know that for me, and I think as well for you, is we've all grown from these changes and we've discovered new things that we never knew were there before. So that's sort of the language I prefer to use. If I don't like this change, it's probably because it's pushing me in an area that I'm uncomfortable and I'm going to have to grow. Well, I'm thinking on it and I, I'm hearing you that it's an individual choice, like if this change is good or not and how you deal with it internally. But mm-hmm. when I look at many organizations, sometimes they'll implement new systems or mm-hmm. new ways of doing things that just aren't good at all. Yeah. And then they end up causing yeah. them huge amounts of headache down the road, either in staff turnover, lost productivity, loss of financial costs, da-da-da-da-da. How do you determine if, like, this is the right change to make? Are you asking from a manager's point of view or from an employee's point of view? A manager's point of view. Yeah, so when something happens that um, the change itself is not developed, it's not producing the intended ROI, then you have to relook at was this really right, the right thing to do? 
Um, it costs a company a lot of money to bring in a new system and to implement a new system. And it sounds like if, if the system isn't give, delivering the results it's promised, or maybe if it's got a lot of unintended consequences, you may have to roll back the change to the previous system and re-examine what was the original intent. Um, a lot of times when you have people buying soft, I come from a tech, so I know that uh, salespeople will sell you, tell you that this tech does everything. It'll make your bed. It'll clean your house. And in the reality, you're like, well, we do things this way. Oh, it doesn't do that. We do things that way. Oh, it doesn't do that. So there's the difference between the sales conversation and the actual design conversation. Um, if these, if, if during the design conversation, you're finding a lot of roadblocks, I think as a leader, it's time to stand up and say, this isn't working. And uh, we're going to as expensive as it is to roll back, it's going to cost us a lot more down the road because at some point people are going to get frustrated. They're going to move on. They're not going to put up with this. So as a as a leader, it's really important to take note of, you know, what are the, the unintended consequences of this change? And it's spend time again with, with the wolves to have them give you their point of view to realize before you roll it out, what's the effect? That actually makes a lot of sense to examine what effect yeah. will this have? And if it's not having that desired effect, maybe we need to go back to that drawing board. Yeah. And it, to this point, it's also, it's really looking at, I, I see this a lot from leaders is, oh, it's no big deal. This change is no big deal. It's, it's just this. And in a lot of my design documents, my change management worksheets, I actually list every possible person, every possible group, because a lot of times it's easy. When we think of a change, we look at a specific problem we're trying to solve, but we forget the whole context and the, really the environment around it. And so by going through a checklist of all the environment, oh, I forgot this system uses that and now that's not going to be happening. Or there are a lot of unintended consequences that happen. So the more thorough you can bring in other stakeholders to look at what the effects are of a change, the more likely it's, it is going to work. But a lot of times there's a lot of, we see this all the time where a change goes in and it breaks something. Oh yeah, we didn't think about them. Oh yeah. Um, so the more thorough you can have as far as checklists of different how systems talk to each other, different systems affected, different stakeholders, different groups, um, the more likely it is to be successful. So then how would one go about creating this checklist for stakeholders? I think um, I have one just because I've been doing this for a while, but you would create this by looking at past changes and look at, okay, here's how it affected all the different stakeholders. And you can build this list. Who do you interact with? Um, a lot of times what I've done, this is, has to do with the work I used to do as a customer experience um, leader, was really to look at the entire customer ecosystem. And you can do this with whatever process you're doing, but it's almost like a blueprint of what does my process take into place? So who are my customers and what ha what are all the different pieces from beginning to end? And you'll, you'll develop an initial list for your first project. And then, of course, you'll miss something and you'll add to it after your second project. But you kind of... Over the you know two or three years, you eventually come with like I, I think I've got ninety five percent of the stakeholders and the and the affected areas listed. But it's kind of a you know an evolving process, and you have to really work to add to it as you as you learn. I love it that you say it's an evolving process. You're not going to get it right on the first time. On the second go around, <laughs> it'll be so yeah. much better. And that's really, it's, it's like how I think it's, it's, a, it's as coaches, we know this is really an approach to anything. It's, it's, it's the first time around, you, you'll do okay, but it takes time to, for things to evolve and, and fit in and work properly. 
It really does. And it's that weird cycle of success where you have to embrace the failures in order to succeed. Exactly. Exactly. Well, in talking about failures, because many leaders, they're going to, there's some common pitfalls that they fall into when it comes to change management. What are some of the pitfalls that you've seen that they fall into? I think it depends on the company culture. Um, when in working in tech, what happens is we have a lot of people. If you look at the range from emotional to an analytical, where there's this kind of this range, um, people in tech tend to tend to be very analytical, and so they think they think of things as black and white, and it's very numbers driven, and they tend to overlook the emotional side of things. So they minimize, oh, they'll be fine. It's no big deal. And they overlook that. So they think, again, it gets back to what we talked about earlier. They think we can just flip a switch and send an email and be done with the change. And they totally forget that a lot of people are more emotional and they have hearts and they need to know why and they need to understand what's going on and they have they need to process what's going on. So, well, for some people... I mean, we've seen it, you've seen it in a family, any kind of change. Some kids thrive in a new school. Some kids have take 10 months to get used to a new school. It, everybody's different. So leaders make assumptions that a change is easy. They overlook the the emotional side of things. And they're un, a lot of them are uncomfortable with it. So they stay away from it. And they don't, they don't want to have conversations about it. They, they just like, oh, you'll be fine. They minimize the, the impact of the change. And if all they did was just acknowledge, you know what, I, I'm. this really sucks. I know this is hard. Just the acknowledgement makes such a difference, but they push it away and they, they want to ignore it. And then of course it goes underground and it shows up down the road in all sorts of resistance. I love that. Just acknowledge it. Just acknowledge it. It's funny you say that because I found even in the healthcare industry, although we tend to th- pride ourselves on customer service and being part of that emotional side of it they're very logical when it comes to change management down to be the employees and the patients we are implementing a b and c yeah yeah and you know actually to this point i've been approached by other parts of the organization say well give me a you know your change management give me a checklist and it's not a checklist a change management is really, it's a dialogue with the organization and you're developing some things that you know, and then you check in. What else do you need? What else is going on? And it's a constantly evolving, it's an organism. And your organization, if you treat your organization like an organism, it's going to be a little different every day because they're all people. It's not a machine. And when you start understanding that there's going to be some areas that are going to go over well and maybe, oh, there's other changes happening. Okay, we're going to adjust. It goes so much better when you, know that it's not a one and done. It's an evolving thing. And maybe you're done this month, but oh, you know what? We still have a pockets of resistors. Let's bring them on board and have conversations about what's getting in their way. And it's about it's also about supporting your employees. How can I make you successful with this new change? What else do you need in order to, do you need more, more training? Do you need more enablement? Do you need a job? Do you need somebody to sit with you and, and hear more thoughts about the change? So that's that's my approach. Not everybody agrees with it, but that's my approach. Well, I love this conversation about it's an organism. It is not a machine because there's this idea that organizations are machines where you just you do something once, you slot in the new cog and it's done. And my experience is that's not true at all. No. Like you have staff turnover, you lose knowledge, you gain knowledge. There's so many different variables to consider and it's constantly evolving. Well, think about any team that you've been on. 
every single team I have been on, they may have had the exact same job description, but every team is different. There are all these subtleties. People behave differently. Even somebody in a specific role, every person in their role behaves differently. So treating, uh, taking the time to treat your organization as an organism, and it's it's going to have, you've got some people who are really great at this, people who really who aren't as strong, really takes advantage of the people that you have and makes them feel empowered and valued. I love that. And so diving a little bit deeper into this humanistic change, like how do you, what's the word I'm looking for? How do you encourage this emotional side of change as opposed to sticking strictly to that logical, cold, black and white, you're nothing but a cog? <laughs> Um, you know, that's such a great question. So I'm fortunate because I have a very empathetic person who's leading my organization. And she's very, um, very people, very collaborative, very honest and very engaged. So she 150% supports the work that I do. So I don't get any resistance from her as far as we need. And all of my leaders are, are like this. They they believe in it. Um, they see the benefits. They see the benefits of it in so many ways. Um we have a number of leaders in other orgs who think change management isn't necessary. And what happens to them is they just, they, they think it's a checkbox and they have a less humanistic approach and they have lower engagement scores, lower leadership scores and lower adoption rates and more resistance. So it's, it's the kind of thing where when you see it done and it works well, you're like, how did you do that? And it's, and, and, and some of them won't be convinced that they think it's a waste of time, but, we look time and time again, we see that we are, our team is more resilient. Um, we pivot more readily when things happen. We collaborate more readily and um, we're more, um, what would be the word? We're just more dynamic and more flexible because we have this, this change management as part of how we do our work. I love it. That flexibility is key. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. And so. What should we do if we are encountering any of that resistance? Like we're one of those leaders that we're trying to implement change and we start noticing, hey, the resistors are acting up. There's mm -hmm. this problem coming on and we're not getting the change that we needed or wanted. Yeah. So I would recommend the first stop is have few, a few focus groups and invite your resistors to talk to you. Have conversation. What's going on? Where are you getting stuck? What's happening? And then come out with something, really listen. Don't just say, okay, listen to you now, go back to make the change. Is take in what your, what your um, people have said and like, okay, now what are, how are we going to move forward? And bring the team together to decide the path forward. Otherwise, it's, you're, you're just going to get stuck. It's, you may not like it. It may take longer. It may cost more money. But if this is the change that you want, if you don't bring these people who are pushing back in, uh, it's not going to go. There, there are so many stories of projects that rolled out, people rolled out systems and they didn't go anywhere. They didn't adopt them. So talk to your people, bring them in, make them feel heard and act on what you hear, but listen. I love that. It's listening to them, but also acting on what they've said. Because I know yeah. so many times leadership tends to get the first half right. They start listening, but then they don't act on anything that they've yeah. heard. Yeah. And I get the feeling that sometimes that causes more resistance down the road yeah. than if they had not done anything at all. Because at least if they hadn't done anything at all, then they're, they're like, well, you don't care about me. But now they feel like, oh, now you pretend to care about me. 
Is that kind of an yeah, accurate and, assumption? Absolutely. And really what we're asking leaders is we're asking leaders, you need to change too. And that can be uncomfortable for leaders because they have to acknowledge that I'm not the person who knows everything. I'm going to be open to this feedback and I'm going to, okay, what needs to change? What needs to go differently? And leaders don't always like that. <laughs> I, I imagine not. Most of them like being the one that knows yeah. it all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how do you encourage that change within the leader themselves? I think if I had the answer, I'd be really rich. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's part of the problem with what happens is when you, our model today in business is, you know, more, you you, you lead more, you know, more, you get promoted, you lead more. And so you start building this sense of confidence around all these things I know. And this whole area of the unknown and possibility and gray, you avoid because it's uncomfortable. And you stay in this whole area of this is my expertise. I know what I'm doing. I'm in charge. Um, But the more you can spend time in the gray being open, the more effective a leader are. But most leaders spend a lot of times in the black and white of I know all of this and I'm going to become smarter and smarter. And you see time and time again, all these businesses fail because they go this way with knowledge that was valid 20, 30 years ago, but it's no longer valid. And I'm seeing it at my organization as well. These 50-year-old management techniques that really aren't effective today and all they do is annoy people i love that living in the land of the gray not the black and white exactly because that's i think that's to me you know if, if you ask me now i think a key job skill for anything is not a degree it's not experience is this ability to learn new things and then pivot and land on your feet but keep your eye out what else do i need to know where else am i going to go and so all of a sudden, when you become this really flexible person, whatever comes along, rework, job change, anything, okay, you, you, you're you open to it. And then you can land on your feet in a new place. But this old model of I'm going to study for 20 years and I'm going to become an expert in this, that's you're, you're going to hit hit the wall at some point in time and it's going to be a hard, it's going to be hard to, to, to work through. And we see that a lot of that. People get stuck. Well, and it seems like this outdated idea in regards with you're going to go to school, you're going to get a degree, yeah. and you're going to be at this job till you retire. And in our yeah. new world, it almost demands this greater flexibility, both at work and within the organization and the organization as a whole, and with the individual. So exactly, exactly. What? How can you become more flexible? So I am reading this fabulous book. Um, hang on a second. I'm going to pull it up here on my um, uh, on my Audible. It's by Bruce Feiler, and it's called The Search. And he talks about this phenomenon, about how work used to be where you became a, you, you know, you, you studied and you had a career for so many years. And now everything is super flexible. We've seen the whole sharing economy. Um, and so this idea of having a job for 20 years no longer exists. It still exists for some fields, but for most fields, it's going to be very flexible. So it's this idea that you always you always kind of take assess of where you are and, and what do I want to do? And is this still fitting me? Because we're, as, it's not only jobs, but it's in our lives. Things are always changing as well. Um, and we expect things to be the same, but they're not. Everything is always changing and things are ch- and the pace of change is increasing. So. Um, I think it's it's about really 
having a coach is a huge step in that direction because checking in with your, even if you have a coach once a year, just do a check-in of where am I? Are things still working for me? Oh, you know what? Now I'm doing this. This no longer works for me. Really assessing, um, having an open mind and really being open to new ideas is really where you're going to, how you're going to get somewhere. And what, what should you do if you notice that you're too rigid on your change and you're not really being open to these ideas and you already have that coach that you're checking in with once a year? Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself too rigid, number one, do you want to stay rigid? Because you can get a coach, but if you don't want to change, you know, you may as well be talking to the wall. Uh, so if you want to start being less rigid and then working with your coach, you can probably find a way to make one small change. Maybe you change the way you drive to the grocery store. Maybe you try one new food or a new restaurant and just start opening up and you'll find sometimes these, these little small changes are awesome or they're really, they're really lame, but you start opening that up. It's not about changing everything and making everything new. It's just start to open it up, working with your coach on what change am I going to try and what's, what's holding me back from making changes and what, what changes do I want to make? So there are a lot of ways to address that. Well, and I know when it comes to making change, one of the major resistors or resistances I usually see is the, the fear of failure. They're yeah. just, they're terrified if I try something new, if even I change something within my organization, it'll end in failure, which will be embarrassing or shameful to me because I'm the leader of this organization or I'm the one putting myself out there. What should these individuals do to kind of overcome that fear? So usually, um, again, fail, thinking of failure is thinking in terms of black and white. And when I work with my project managers, I say I ask them about what change are we making? And before we even started the change, what does success criteria look like? What are some of the measurements? Do we want to have, because you can't expect the change to happen tomorrow and then have 100% adoption. So let's say, do we want to have 10% adoption in the first month and then 50% adoption by the end of the first quarter? And really start looking at those metrics that can check what's going on with the change to see how it's going. Because expecting things to go 100% the first time is really unrealistic. Also, what you want to do is you want to, as a leader, when you implement the changes, you want to find success stories early and you want to bring your advocates and share some what's going on. This is really working. So this whole idea of a, a change being a success or a failure uh, is really, it's, it's, it's black and white thinking. And I would encourage leaders to start looking at what are success metrics and then how do you start seeing a gradual adoption and work with your team if things aren't, again, as we talked about earlier, if the change isn't happening, what's getting in your way and what support do you need in order to adopt this change? So again, be involved, listen, and work and collaborate. Well, I love these success metrics that you've outlined. And you said something fascinating, which was success stories. I'd love to know a little bit more about success stories and like, how do you even use success stories? So success stories are so important because any kind of change you make, um, you're going to be, there's going to be a loss, no matter what it is. Um, you're, let's say you, let's use a personal example. You move to a new place. It's like, we've always wanted to have, you know, this apartment in this new city. Um, but that's hard because there's loss. You're losing where you used to live and now you're going to a new place and it's like, well, it has opportunities, but there's also other losses. So what, what's working? Well, you know what? There's this great new restaurant down the road that I love. Oh, that's a success. So it helps to shift the brain from looking for faults to looking for success. 
by default, our brains are always looking for danger. So they're always going to look for the negative. And when you start finding success stories, oh, I really love this new school and I made one new friend, your brain starts thinking, oh, I made one friend, maybe I can make two new friends. And it really shifts the brain from looking for negatives to really focusing on positives. And eventually you start seeing more and more positives and people are like, oh, wow, this was a really successful change. And the negatives, you know, the losses become, well, that was okay. I lost that, but I gained all of these new things. So it's really important to get that narrative out. And most people don't spend the time to do that. There's, here's the change and we're going. And it's, it, 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 the other thing that it does is it makes people more willing to adopt new changes. When they start hearing about this was really great because we have this new metric and this, we're seeing a really success and people feel good when they hear success stories. So they'll, they'll be more open to it. This very much reminds me of self-fulfilling prophecies where typically they'll say, you know what, I'm not going to succeed at dancing. I'm going to be a fool at dancing. And then they start doing things unintentionally or subconsciously to ensure that they're a failure when they yep. try to dance because this is the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy that they built up in their heads. But when you talk about success stories and how awesome the change is going, it sounds like you're almost trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy to spur yourself on subconsciously to make it a success. Exactly. And it, it's so important to start focusing that because um, I love you talked about dance because as you know, I've started going to a dance class and I started it last year. And when I first went, I was terrible. And instead of saying I sucked at the dance and it was terrible, I decided to say, you know what? I followed about 10% of, of the class. And I was really spastic the other 90%. But I focused on this week, I got 10%. That was my success. The next week, it was 20%. And eventually it grew. And again, it was focusing on, it's not that I failed the first time, it's that I'm learning. And so when you start focusing on the things that are going well, your brain starts looking for positives. And it's it takes a little work, but it's so worth it because your brain wants to be right. Whatever it is you're saying, it wants to be right. So if you start saying success stories, it's, oh, I want to be right. I'm going to find more success. But if you start looking for failures, it's going to do the exact same thing. Oh, that's fabulous. And so then my natural question would be, because I know there's toxic positivity where you're thinking of everything in such a positive light that you tend to overlook when things are going wrong. How do you create that balance between looking for the positives and yet still looking for the troubled spots that kind of need twi uh, tweaking and fixing? Um, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's uh, It really gets back to what we talked about earlier is listening. Because again, you're, when you go through a change, you look at, you have conversations and wow, we have these success stories, but this piece still isn't working. All right, let's see what we're going to do. And you want to look at both sides and not just assume everything is great. People see right through that. I, we, I call it lipstick on a pig and it's, and it's really does nothing to build the trust and the engagement of your team. So it's really important to acknowledge this is fabulous and we're working on this and we hear you. Let's see what we can do to improve this so that it can be good as well. It's listening and conversation. I love that it comes back to just listening and conversations, yeah. but it seems like there's yeah. almost an acceptance of it is what it is. How do mm -hmm. we move forward from here as opposed to let's just try to sweep it under the rug. This is awful. This is, we can't do this or it's all rainbow and sunshine. There's just, on a weird sense, I get the feeling that a lot of change management is just 
unconditional accepting that it is what it is right now and helping move things forward. Exactly. And acknowledgement, like as we talked about earlier, it's acknowledging here's where we are. This part is this part sucks and this part's this part's pretty cool. So how what are we going to do to move forward? And so how does one start building up this just acknowledging? Just acknowledge that it's neither good nor bad, it just is, and start living in that land of that gray. Are you talking from like from an organizational point of view or from a personal point of view? Why not both? <laughs> so from an organizational point of view, um, we recently had a big all-hands meeting, and I love the way the leaders positioned this. We had a big work change last year, and people were curious about it. And what they did is, you know what, here's where we were really successful. And they talked about this. And then they came back and said, here's areas we're still figuring out. So we understand this. We Again, they acknowledge that there's still frustration around these particular points. And here are the projects that we have to help address these. So it's acknowledging the, the both and saying it's not, it, and it's, it's, it's looking at the change as it's not 100% positive, it's not 100% negative. It's, we, it's we, we accomplish these goals and then we're working on these. So very, very constructive. Um, and I think it's the same thing with personally. It's, so you look at where you succeeded. I, I'm now in the process of looking at 2023 and thinking, where did I succeed and what hap- what else happened? And, you know, this whole idea of failure, I try to, I don't like to use the word failure. I like to use, look at things like, well, this didn't work. And, but here's what I got out of it. Or, or now I know this, and this is not something I want to spend time on or, or here's how I want to approach it differently next year. So to me, failure is, um, there's more of a punishment and a negative vibe to it, which I don't think is very helpful. And so I want to look at, and this is what I do a lot with my coaching clients is we experiment with things between sessions. Why don't you experiment and see what happens? And that l- takes all the pressure off because all of a sudden you're in a lab and you're trying something out and then you come back with data. Oh, this piece worked, this didn't work, and this, I want to tweak that. So let's try a new experiment based on what you've learned in the last, in the last couple of weeks. I love that idea of experimenting. I use it with my clients all the time. I'm like, let's just experiment with an action step. You know, we're not committing to anything. This isn't a hard change. And if it's a good experiment, let's keep going. And if it didn't work, let's experiment to try something else. It's very non-threatening. It it is. And it's, it really, it takes all the ego out of it. It's, it's opening up to, it, 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 it creates a more open spirit when you try to experiment with things like, oh, I wonder what's, because all of a sudden you approach it with curiosity as opposed to this whole, I'm putting myself out there and if I fail, I'm going to be embarrassed. No, I'm just going to try it. And then I'll, I don't know what I'm going to learn, but I'll learn something from it. Well, and what I love about just chit-chatting with this with you is this idea of language almost where we're not failing, we're experimenting. And just changing the words helps people understand a different meaning to help them move forward with it. Exactly. That's one of the things I've noticed around change management is a change in in our language within our organization because it it becomes less heavy, less less of this, uh, you know, you're a failure or you're you're a success. It's like we're all, this is where we achieve something and then here's areas where we're going to continue to grow. But it, it has a more it has a more um, sense of possibilities with it, which I love. And then if, and if things are really bad, because there are definitely, I don't want to, I don't want to go into the toxic positivity where everything's great. There are things that are challenging and there are some org changes that nobody likes. And 
at that point, the time is to allow, allow for the, the bad feelings, allow for the grief, allow for whatever's happening. And then once that time, that, that time is passed, then it's like, okay, now what do we do? And to really allow for figuring out what do I want to do next? And where do I see myself? So it's, it's allowing for the bad things, but it's also providing support afterwards. Where do you want to go? I love that. Always providing support, continue to have mm -hmm. those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And then one question that I've been meaning to ask you since I started chatting with you is sustainable change. How does one go about creating sustainable change? How do you define sustainable change? Well, I'm thinking of this one organization in particular who what they were trying to do was they were trying to implement a client-centered program within their organization. Unfortunately, there was such a staff turnover that when they started implementing their change management, they got about halfway through and then the entire staff pretty much got wiped out, in which case they were in a hiring cycle and the, the change just kind of stopped dead in its tracks because it just wasn't that sustainable. And I'm just kind of curious, how does one prevent or how does one create stable change within their organization so that they don't start something and or they do the change only to be falling backwards unintentionally? Yeah, it sounds to me like there were some some fundamental issues with the organization before the change even started to have staff turnover halfway through. So to me, even the change, it was not the right time for the change. I think the organization probably should have focused on spending time addressing what issues are address, are affecting staff because that turnover in the middle of the change is a symptom of a bigger problem. It's not the issue with the change. And so if that's happening, you, I, what I think would happen is I would stop the change, go back to basics, get the staff stabilized, get them on a foundational, and then re-engineer re the change, bringing the staff into it so that they can help make the change happen and make it worthwhile. But I think there were some there were some deeper foundational issues before the change even happened. I found that so interesting. It's just, if the change isn't working, there's foundational issues going on that need to be addressed first. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen many organizations try to implement change and things just kind of start falling apart. And what you said there makes a lot of sense that there are some deep foundational issues going on that need to be fixed before they could implement change. Kind of reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly it. I mean, if you think of a, if you think of a, let's just use a married couple as an example. If they're not getting along, sending them on a vacation is not going to fix the problem. And they're going to have a tough time with all of the changes with travel, what traveling entails. So the foundational of the marriage needs to be addressed and then anything, any other change that comes along will be able to address by the thing. But the found, if the foundation isn't there, change doesn't really matter. I love that. And so as we're coming to the end of our podcast episode, I have a question. What would one thing a manager should know when implementing change management be? I would recommend that they really spend time with their team to understand who they are and what their needs are. Really understand how is my, it would be great if a manager and I work with managers all the time is we're considering this change. How might your team react to them? 
and you would know, well, you know, Betty is going to be great with this because she's wanted this change for a long time. And Sam's going to have our time with it because of these other things. So really knowing your team and then bringing them into the conversation, allowing, you know, trusting them with their, with their, with their points of view as well during the change is really important that those relationships are so foundational. Trusting the team and having that conversation. What are their needs? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast here, Cynthia. For those that are interested in what you're doing and what you're all about, where should they keep in touch with you? Um, so I really enjoyed our conversation as well, Adam. So thank you. You're a really great interviewer. Um, so you can find me at CynthiaLate.com or you can go to uh, resilience-coach.org. I'm also on LinkedIn at CynthiaLate, L-A-I-T, and on Instagram, CynthiaLate. Phenomenal. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I can't wait to see what work you're doing in the future. Uh, thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, and share it with a friend. And if you're ready to take the next leap and improve your leadership skills, head over to www.seedingthelead.com book your free coaching session today. Mm-hmm.